This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today I'm talking with Virginia Eubanks. She is the author of Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor. Virginia Eubanks systematically investigates the impacts of data mining, policy algorithms, and predictive risk models on poor and working class people in America. Virginia Eubanks is an associate professor of political science at the University at Albany, SUNY. For decades, she has worked in community technology and economic justice movements. And she is also a founding member of the R Data Bodies Project and a fellow at New America. Virginia Eubanks, welcome to Books, Peace, and Beyond. Taj, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So let's just get right into it. What made you interested or even aware of this subject matter? Yeah, so there's a number of different sort of origin stories for the book, but I think the most important one is uh, for a long time I worked in community technology centers and in economic justice movements, and I in 2000 I was sitting in a technology center that I had helped build in um, uh, some low-income housing in Troy, New York, which is my hometown, which is where I live, and I was talking to a young mother on public assistance sort of about her experience with technology, and in the book I call her Dorothy Allen. So I'm sitting with Dorothy and we're talking about technology and and we end up talking about uh, her EBT card, which is the electronic benefits transfer card. It's like a debit card that most folks get their public assistance benefits on these days, whether that's their food stamps or cash assistance or childcare funds or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about our EBT card um, and I said, oh, yeah, so people are saying that they really like these, that they're more convenient, that they're less stigmatized than actually using food stamps in the grocery store. And Dorothy said, oh, yeah, that's all true. Um, But also, my caseworker uses my EBT card to track all of my um, purchases. Wow. And, yeah, I must have had this super shocked look on my face, right, because she kind of looked at me and she laughed at me a little bit. And and then she turned really serious and, and she said, oh, you know, you guys, meaning like professional middle class people, like you guys should be paying attention to what's happening to us because they're coming for you next. Wow. And this was 18 years ago, mm. right? And, and and it's really the moment that I became really interested in how our sort of newest, sexiest technologies mm-hmm. are being used specifically in public services. So in welfare and homeless services, in child welfare, um, because I really do think that we can see some of the most uh, concrete, obvious um issues that arise around use of these technologies mm-hmm. if we're if we specifically look at poor working class communities mm-hmm. or other communities where there's kind of low expectations that your rights will be respected mm-hmm. uh, it's where folks can get away with the most yeah. testing these tools and so i think it really makes sense um just both for justice and for knowledge mm-hmm. to be looking in these communities first so that's really where the book came from was dorothy allen so right and, and- as I was reading the book, it, it all these technologies and like it looks like they were really focused on poor and working class people, but they try to sell it in a way that is trying to uh, present it as making it more efficient. 
Mm-hmm. Is that true, or is that just a kind of a way to pour more people into the dragnet? Yeah, so there are two major uh, ways that administ- like administrative folks and data scientists will explain why they're doing the work that they're doing particularly in public services. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the book, I look at three different cases. I look at an attempt to automate all the eligibility processes for the welfare systems uh, in the state of Indiana in 2006. I look at an electronic registry of the unhoused in Los Angeles that uh, was piloted in 2013. And I look at a statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect mm. in Allegheny County in Pennsylvania, which is where Pittsburgh is. And that's a brand new system that was just launched um, a couple of years ago. Um, and so there's generally two reasons that people talk about why they're experimenting with these tools or three. Let's say three. One is uh, exactly what you said, which is efficiency, like uh, doing more with less. Um, is that these are kind of a triage system. And I'm happy to talk about that at at length if you want to. (laughs) Um, The second reason, often people talk about wanting to improve services, right? Like Mm -hmm. so many of these programs are legitimately incredibly hard to navigate. Mm -hmm. And the like difficulty of getting through these systems often acts as a form of diversion, right? So if you have to fill out a 30-page application for food stamps and wait in line all day to turn in a paper application and then go to another building and fill out another 30-page application for home heating assistance and then, you know, wait in a day-long line, right? Like, so often people are talking about these systems as, like, let's integrate these systems so you don't have to do this this really time-consuming and difficult process over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the third reason people talk about Uh, integrating these systems or experimenting with these systems is to reduce bias in frontline casework. Hmm. So folks will talk about, right, the fact that frontline caseworkers have either conscious or or overt bias, um, and that has historically been a huge problem in our public service programs. That's just real. Let's not, like, pretend that racism and classism doesn't exist in these systems. Um, But another one of the reasons that folks talk about Um, experimenting with these tools is that we understand computers to be neutral and objective, um, (laughs) or at least more neutral and objective than human caseworkers on the front line. And that's interesting. Those are the three reasons they tend tend to give. And that's interesting because with all this technology, it's like humans just believe that computers can do it better than we can. Yeah, they can computate faster, but you, you brought up something. You said the biases. Like, when you build these systems, like, how do you omit bias? How do you omit the human bias, the, the human prejudices when it comes to these systems? Do they even take that into consideration? Yeah, so that's the that's the million-dollar question, right, is, like, do these systems actually remove bias from, from public decision-making? Um, and I'd argue that, like, I had this very smart political scientist friend named Joe Sauce, and um, one of my favorite sort of sayings by him is he says, you know, discretion is like energy. Like, it can't be, um, uh, it can't be created or destroyed. It can only be moved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So one of the things I ask people to think about when they're looking at these systems is, are we actually removing discretion from the decision-making processes in these public service programs? 
or are we just moving it somewhere else? Mm -hmm. So let me give you a concrete example. It will make it much easier. So the system I study in Allegheny County is called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, the AFST. Um, and part of the reason for um, it existing is to keep an eye on the discretionary mistakes of uh, intake workers who make the decision after they re receive like a report of abuse and neglect, either from the, the county's um, sort of emergency call line or from a man mandated reporter. Um, they make the decision whether or not to screen that report or that family in for a full-blown investigation, child, mm. child protective investigation. Mm. So part of the reason for this tool is um, to keep an eye on the discretionary excesses of those intake workers. Um, now, I'd argue that we're just moving discretion from the front line of this office to the engineers and data scientists mm. who are building the tool, right, right? right? So we believe that these digital decision-making tools are objective and neutral, but we actually bake all of these moral and political assumptions right into them. So in the case of the AFST, one of the assumptions that's built in um, is the system only has access to data on people who have used public services, so yeah. county services and state services. Um, and it doesn't have data on folks who rely on similar services but can pay for them through private money. Right? That's a good so, point. That is a really yeah, good point. Yeah. If you've gotten um, support for an addiction with um, uh, that you've used private insurance to pay for it, you're not in the system, so mm. you won't be ranked highly by the system. Mm. If you rely on babysitters and nannies and au pairs to help you to help support your child's care, um, you won't end up in the system. Only if you reach out for support from public resources do you end up in the system. So folks who are actually accessing public services to keep their families safe um, are actually going to end up being scored more highly by the system wow. and are going to be seen as riskier to the children, which is exactly what we don't want to happen, right? Exactly. We want people who are willing to reach out for support from whatever source they can get it to get support with their parenting, not to be seen as like a flashing red number and a risk to their children. So it's so almost like they're criminalizing the poor. If you want some kind of assistance, then you get flagged for other things. And since it's public, well, it's public assistance, they see it as public data. What does that say about privacy in, in that sense? Yeah, so I, I'm going to respond to the privacy thing real quick, and then I want to go back to this criminalization thing because it's really important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so the privacy, the, one of the things that's really interesting about this work is that, um, so I did 105 interviews for the book, and I started in each case um, from the point of view of folks who are targets of these systems. So in Indiana, I spoke mostly to folks who had lost their welfare benefits during this automation eligibility um, fiasco. Uh, in Los Angeles, I talked mostly to folks who were currently homeless or in the unhoused community. Um, and in Pittsburgh, I mostly talked to folks who have been targets of well, um, child welfare investigations. Those aren't the only folks I talked to, right? I then went on to talk to the designers of the systems and administrators and policymakers. But one of the things that I think is missing in the conversations we're having about these like automatic decision-making machines we're building 
is the point of view of folks who are most affected by yeah. them. So there's some great conversations out there. There's some great work out there around this, but it tends to be really abstract and really floaty, right? Like it all gets very minority report really fast. Like, <laughs> yeah. In the future, they might do X. They might have precogs, right? Like they might have this, they might have that. But like in reality, this stuff is happening right, right now, now yeah. in poor working class communities. And like we have to, that has to be where we start, right? Uh, because otherwise we can sort of lose the address really quickly, right? And you were, you and were in these. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was, I was gonna. You had a great example of uh, talking about criminalizing the poor when you talked about the um, housing eligibility system in yes. uh, Los Angeles, yes. and yes. Uh, I, I'll let you go a little into detail of that, but just th- how this creates such a vicious cycle. That that one you're you're homeless, you get housing, you're criminalized somehow, you're arrested and then you're homeless again. It's a vicious cycle. If you can really talk about um, the eligibility system a little bit in Los Angeles around how yeah. it criminalizes the poor. Yeah, I think that's definitely the the most direct example uh, of the criminalization of poverty in the book. I just want to like put a pin in that last point around privacy while I was why I was bringing up who I was talking to is one of the things that's really interesting is when you talk to the folks who are um, targets of these systems, that privacy comes up, but it's not like the first thing people are concerned about. It's Mm -hmm. not even like the fifth thing most people are concerned about. People are really concerned about like self-determination and agency, right? Right. Like their ability to exert power in their own lives. Um, And so I think it's really important to pay attention to privacy, but not to assume that's what folks necessarily always want. People really want to be able to make the decisions that most affect their lives for themselves. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Here we go, y'all. Here we go. Here we go, y'all. Go. Can I kick it? Can I kick it? Can I kick it? They say we living in a generation that's full of gentrification Agenda-based agendas, a genuine indication Thinking back and forth about who controls the premises But it's all stolen land from the native people indigenous The remnants of irreverent is irrelevant They justify the why through cinematic embellishments Then we let elitists mislead us The buffer turn working class whites against all people of color We suffer the same affliction through economic restriction Focus on skin tone where they pockets have since grown It's known the black and white concept is just a myth Until they get profit from it, race didn't exist from the current face of a felon to the state that we fell in To the fabrication and bait at the Vegas rebellion It was telling, they won't stop till the spectrum is stretched Do we see ourselves as one we can never progress? Can I kick it? 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 Well, I'm gone. Let's talk about criminalization and, um, and, and homelessness So the system I look at in Los Angeles is called the Coordinated Entry System um, and it's based on some really sound principles. So in the past, access to homeless services is really based on your strength. Like literally, if you could wait in a multi-day line for a housing opportunity, or if you have really good relationships with um, frontline workers, and that often left the most vulnerable folks sort of out in the cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what coordinated entry is supposed to do is match the most vulnerable homeless folks with the most appropriate available resource. But the real challenge here is establishing your sort of vulnerability 
um, so that you can be ranked in this system requires um, filling out a really invasive survey. Mm -hmm. And the rules around who gets to see that information are at best unclear. So the survey has a pretty horrible acronym. It's called the VI SPDAT. Just uh, let's see if I can do it. The Vulnerability Index and Service Prioritization Decision Assistance Tool. Nice. Thank you. And it asks questions like, are you having unprotected sex? Are you running drugs for someone? Have you thought of harming yourself or others? Um, and the folks who are taking this survey sign a really extensive informed consent, um, but it's a, a little bit of a stretch, I think, really to say that this is meaningful consent when this is the front door to almost all of the housing resources in Los Angeles. Yeah, County. that's scary. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, and then you have to actually specifically request a second list of who um, gets access to this information. And if you do request it and you do actually get the list, it's 168 different organizations and agencies across the city. Wow. So for the folks that I spoke to, you know, and I spoke to a lot of different people who had a lot of different experiences with the system. I, I spoke to a woman named Monique who said, you know, this, this, the coordinated entry is a gift from God. I mm -hmm. got housed through it. It changed my life. Um, but I also spoke to a lot of people like um, Gary Boatwright, who had taken the survey three times, had been on the streets for 10 years, um, and had not gotten any services and had not gotten housed. And he really felt like he had, he was being asked to incriminate himself mm -hmm. in exchange for like a slightly higher lottery number for housing. Yeah, because you kind of brought up something like, like you said, a person can take the test or the, fill out the application, not get approved, but some will get insistence from a caseworker, although they're not really supposed to in a sense, and then they mm -hmm. can get approved. Like you said, they have to make themselves look like um, make them look more desperate than others but it seems like with that last example he really had a really high self of high sense of self-determination and agency but he was still homeless but he was like you said he was ranked low in that sense yeah well we, we won't really ever know what his score was right. what his vulnerability score was like we guess right? yeah like we got a copy of the of the survey from the internet where you know everybody has access mm, to it, mm -hmm. and we went down and we guessed like maybe his score would be around a ten, which puts him sort of right in the middle. Um, now his like his suspicion and his concern that he was being asked to incriminate himself um, might, for folks who have not been through the process, sound like paranoia. But I think it's really important to understand that according to federal data standards, mm -hmm. um, information that's held in the database that this information is held in, it's called an HMIS, uh, Homeless Management Information System, um, then law enforcement actually has access to information in that database um, without a warrant. They yeah, wow. Request. So they can't actually like type in the computer and get into the system, but they can go to an agency and ask the frontline workers to, to release information from the HMIS to law enforcement. And that's all because um, they signed a waiver because they did the application that they can bypass the warrant. Is that how that all kind of works right there? Well, so this is actually based just on a federal data standard. Oh, right? wow. So okay. that's a decision that the federal government made when they were building. The, so mm. this kind of gets into the historical weeds. I don't want to spend it. Oh, yeah, sure. It. Yeah. But we ended up with the HMIS um, during the second Bush presidency. Mm. or I don't remember, actually, either the first or second Bush presidency. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, because the original idea was to have basically a, an unduplicated count of every homeless person in the United States. Oh. And there were some folks who were like, hang on, like one database of all the homeless people in the United States sounds like a bad idea. Right. It sounds really dangerous. We don't want to have that. So there was pushback on that idea. And what we got instead was this set of um, – in order to get federal, certain kinds of federal money for homeless services, you have to agree to collect certain kinds of information, certain mm. fields. Mm -hmm. And the HMIS system is the system that holds all the information from those fields. So it's not actually like I can look up Gary Boatwright in a national database of homeless folks. It's I not see. like that. Okay. But part of the decision to create this HMIS system was that law enforcement should have access to this information and wow. shouldn't have to have a warrant. Wow. Um, so if if a beat cop goes to um, uh, one of the missions, say, in uh, Los Angeles and says, I need information on John, John Doe, um, the, the frontline person can refuse to give it to them, but they are, by federal law, allowed to share information out of the HMIS. And there's no reason for that to exist except no. for to make this information more easily available to law enforcement. No. So there should at least be a warning process, right? right like absolutely. It, you should have to prove that there's an ongoing investigation, that there's reasons you want to go poking around in this database. It's, it's, um, but it, that would be a change that would have to happen on the federal level. Yeah, it's almost like you, you also had a part that once some, some of the people did get housing, a lot of them feared even leaving their house because they always felt like they were being interrogated. But yeah, so so I did a lot of work both in Skid Row in Los Angeles and in South L.A., uh, which has been rebranded. Um, uh, it used to be called South Central, um, but now is in the middle of a sort of gentrification push, and they've sort of um, rebranded the area of South L.A., um, so I did a lot of work in both of those neighborhoods, and particularly in Skid Row – um, there's a lot of gentrification pressure right now um, mm. from the sort of reclamation of downtown Los Angeles. Um, so the sort of hippest urban pioneer area of L.A. right now is is downtown, and it really just sits um, right up against Skid Row. Um, and actually the, the gentrification has been pushing the boundaries of Skid Row back for the last say decade um so skid row's been losing ground for the last 10 years wow. um and part of that has been um aggressive policing both by actual law enforcement and by these um sort of hired um security guards um that where are are hired by the business improvement districts mm. so i went on a really great walking tour of skid row with a, a local activist named general dogon and Dogon was uh, sharing his own experience of when he finally got into um, a single-room occupancy hotel in Skid Row after being homeless for a while, um, that this is at the point at which there was sort of the most, um, the, the hardest push to keep people um, off the streets um, or a, at least away from view. Um, and he said that he he would come downstairs to sort of the waiting area of his SRO and he would find all of his neighbors sort of drawing straws wow. uh, to, to see who was going to go to the corner store to buy like sodas or cigarettes or whatever. Because and th what he said to me is like it was like Viet it's like Vietnam. You don't know when you go out. You don't know if you're coming back. That is so right? sad. Like, yeah, the, the arrests and criminalization were so intense 
that people felt like even just leaving the building, um, they they didn't know if they were going to make it home again. Wow. We'll be right back.
200th anniversary of the of the poor house wow. movement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the solution, um, the elite sort of reformers of the time um, were really concerned that being generous, providing any kind of aid to poor and working folks would lead them to depend on those 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 benefits and, you know, would would destroy sort of their their thrifty habits and their desire for work. Mm. Um, and so that the decision was to build this network of brick and mortar poorhouses that were supposed to be so terrifying and the conditions so awful that anyone who had any other choice would not ask for public benefits. So the wow. idea was to say you can only get you can get public benefits, but you can only get them if you live in this horrifying wow. place. Wow. Um, and what's important about that moment is it's the moment at which we decided that um, the most important part of public benefits was the the piece that's about moral diagnosis, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. first, before we offer anyone help, yeah. we have to decide whether or not their poverty is their own fault. <laughs> um, and that's actually pretty unique, right? Like in lots of other places in the world, approach this stuff from a human rights perspective that says everyone has a right to these this basic set of things, right? And there's disagreement about what those things are like, but it's basically food, housing, water, right. Education, healthcare um, tend to be the things that people housing tend to be the things that people talk about, and the only sort of moral diagnosis that or the only diagnosis that has to happen there it's a very simple algorithm. It's like, do you have a belly button? <laughs> if you have a belly button, you deserve these things. Right? <laughs> right. But what we say in the United States instead is like, wait, look, we have to figure out, we have to do all of this research on you, we have to do all of this investigation on you to decide whether or not you're deserving of support. Wow. Um, and so we go from the poorhouse, which is about, really about containment. It's just about like fear. It's like, we're going to scare you so bad. We're going to divert you from using these resources. We move in the late 1800s um, in the Gilded Age towards uh, what's called at the time scientific charity. Scientific which is the, charity. Wow. Yeah, the most scientifically advanced <laughs> um, social service system of the 1890s which actually in the beginning used police officers to investigate whether or not people were deserving of support. And that's where we get the language of um, casework, case right? Work. Like wow. you're, you're working a case, mm. right? Um, and so one of the arguments I make in the book is that these integrated databases, these predictive models, these other kind of high-tech tools that we're seeing in public service programs are really more evolution than revolution. Even though we talk about them as being disruptive, what we're doing is really just building a digital version of the poorhouse that is intended to divert people from resources they need to survive and thrive um, and investigate their moral deservingness um, for things that are basic human rights. Right. And, and what was interesting, I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but just to bring it up, to kind of kind of flip the whole, you, you know, it was all about your behavior and your morality if you deserve this. Then we, you talked about um, the Great Depression and FDR's New Deal, and now people who were middle class and so forth are now poor. So they kind of have to alter the way they talk about who is deserving now. It's, it, that was interesting. Yeah, I think one of the things that's super important to understand is, like, this is not um, – a partisan issue, right? <laughs> like punishment, surveillance, um, and profiling, diversion of the poor is is a proudly held political belief on both sides yeah, of the absolutely. aisle. Um, 
though not, um, I, I believe, uh, what the majority of us actually feel, believe, and want mm-hmm. as, a, as a political community. So it's really important to understand that when I talk about poor and working class people, that I'm actually talking about the majority of the United States. Yes. So, um, you know, 51% of us will be below the poverty line at some point between the ages of 20 and 64. Mm. A full two-thirds of us will use means-tested public assistance. So that's welfare, like not unemployment, not Social Security, that's straight welfare. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about these tools, and I talk about them as, as tools that are intended to profile punish and police the poor, I'm, I'm talking about all of us, mm. right? Like we, so many of us will, um, will, will experience these systems at some point in our life. Um, and that isn't to say that we'll all we all experience poverty the same mm-hmm. um, or equally. That's certainly not true. Right. Your race, your uh, sort of parent status, you, um, if you have a mental health issue or a physical disability, um, your uh, mig- migration status or your legal status, all of these things really impact your vulnerability to poverty and your ability to recover from it. Um, but I really do believe that these issues are majority issues um, mm-hmm. and that we need to start talking. It was one of the, the big parts of my solutions um, and my optimism, actually, about pushing back against these systems is I think we're in a moment politically where we're going to be able to start talking about poverty as a political identity in the United States um, mm-hmm. and as something that's broadly shared and that creates like incredibly strong political alliances. Not easy work, but important work and and doable. Right. So so what 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 are some of those those solutions you have in mind? Yeah. Well, the first, you know, <laughs> when I talk about this work, often what I feel like people want is like a five or ten point plan, for oh, no. better, better technology. Right. <laughs> like I know that people just want me to be like, look, I have a list. <laughs> you just have to do this checklist and everything. Okay? And I'm I'm sorry to say. That it's um, harder, more complicated, yeah. and deeper than that, um, right? So I, I often uh, say when asked is like the, the first step is is for us to get our souls right around poverty in the United mm-hmm. States. Like mm-hmm. we we really need to be telling different stories about poverty, um, and, and and that will drive political change. And and then we may eventually get the technologies we deserve. Um, but I, I do have some sort of insight on the kinds of things we could start doing. Uh, to start solving the problem. Like the first one is really to stop using these systems as empathy overrides, Mm, right? As as machines that allow us to not face the consequences of the decisions we're making Mm -hmm. um, to have a politics that's based on austerity and inequality. So um, I believe we're using these systems to avoid some of our most sort of pressing political dilemmas, and specifically that's poverty and racism. Um, and so we really need to interrogate these systems, look at them in the cases where it feels like we're letting ourselves off the hook. Yeah, because um, having a system, um, you could just blame it on the technology since these days everybody holds technology in such high regard. It's easy to distance ourselves from the, this moral yeah. crisis. Yeah, absolutely. So like in Los Angeles, for example, so there's 58,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles County. I live in a small city called Troy, New York, that has 50,000 people. So that's my whole city is homelessness in Los Angeles, is homeless in Los Angeles, right? Um, I don't want to be the caseworker who says I have 100 people who came to ask me for resources today and I only have enough resources to help two of them, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. That's That's an impossible decision for an individual to make. That is. 
Um, but the solution to that is not to then outsource that decision to a machine, mm-hmm. right? The solution is to say it's not that one individual's problem. Like, it's, it's all of our problem. Like, we mm-hmm. have a housing crisis in this country. There's not enough affordable housing in any county in the United States, not one, mm-hmm. according uh, to the Urban Institute. <laughs> um, so, like, that is a problem that we have to fix. Like, we can't, um, we can't divert ourselves around that moral crisis by by outsourcing those decisions to machines. So I think that's a really good example of a place where we might be using these systems to avoid the the, the very problems um, that that we really need to be grappling with. Is is there really any significant difference between the poor house of yesterday and the poor house of today, the digital poor house of today? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, I think the metaphor is a really good one. I actually wanted to call the book Digital Poor House. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think the editors were right on that one. But, um, uh, but I, you know, I do. I think it's a really good metaphor, and the reason I use it is to ground this stuff in history, right? Yes. It's to say, this stuff does not drop from the sky, right, like the monolith in 2001. Like, this stuff all grows out of the deep, sort of structural programming, the deep code of our country, which mm-hmm. is white supremacy mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and a hatred of the poor, right? Like, and so it shouldn't surprise us that these tools operate in the ways they, they do because they're, they're grounded in our history and context. Um, but that said, it only goes, that metaphor only goes so far. So I think there's a number of things to be really concerned about, or about the digital poorhouse that are different from the original poorhouse. Um, it is much faster just in terms of its operation. Mm. Um, it scales much more quickly. Like uh, we attempted to build a poorhouse in every county in the United States um, in the sort of hundred years that poorhouses were the, the, the big go-to solution. Uh, we ended up with like a thousand of them, but we never got to every county in the United States, right? It's, it's hard to yeah. scale a brick and mortar institution quickly. Um, and because these systems are digital, they scale much more quickly. And also, really importantly, they're not um, targeted at individuals. They're targeted at networks of people, right? So like your social media network of association, mm-hmm. like these systems don't just interrogate or investigate one person. They investigate you and all of your networks mm-hmm. of association. Mm-hmm. And so that really means that there is the potential for these systems to sort of go viral, go socially viral, Mm. where, um, you know, you enter into a community through one individual or one person, but it moves quickly through a community, through your networks of association. So this kind of networked containment, networked policing, networked diversion um, I think is really something that's different and new and something that we really have to keep a close eye on. We'll be right back. Times change a man and like can be so demanding. Don't mean no harm, I'm just trying to get an understanding. Cause that bogus shit ain't in my mind. Stand for something to fall for anything yeah. And they say life is what you make it about Come from a city most of the people don't make it about, don't make it about. 
Ain't making difference in this world, I know we smart enough So if we wanna make a change, you have to start with us Hey man, I swear this shit I heard her Get life for selling dope, but get less time for a murder Damn, and why they trying to take what's ours? How you supposed to feed your fam, making $8 an hour? So out the mud, they on the way, they know to get it So what's potential if you ain't doing nothing with it? I told them brace yourself because poverty about to triple Can't do shit for ourselves, technology got us crippled And life and death is the power of the tongue And educate yourself, no need to be in black and dumb They tell us go to college, learn to make it on our own But just to spend our whole life paying on student loans Hey man, the boy can't raise a child, you can't put him in four Ain't hey, translation, you can't teach what you've never been taught Yeah, know what you're thinking, don't have to say Cause I know, fam, that we just programmed to follow the program Time change a man and life can be so demanding Don't mean no harm, I'm just trying to get an understanding Cause that bogus shit ain't in me, man Stand for something to fall for anything is what you make it about come from a city most of the people don't make it about ain't make a difference in this world i know we smart enough so if we want to make a change i think something that um is interesting is like you said it's scalable and when you said that it made me think of um the um the automated system that was in indiana this this system was started in one county and it, it was abysmal but they decided to keep moving it anyway. The reason I bring that up is there was a phrase when everyone, someone tried to apply for um, benefits, uh, it frequently kept saying failure to cooperate. And you talk about something so scalable and so many people uh, got the phrase failure to cooperate. Can you talk about that and, 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 and what that means? Yeah, that's a, it's a, such a great example of how these things can go wrong. Um, so, and I'm also so interested in it because this, this phrase, failure to cooperate, it's so much like the law enforcement uh, mm. phrase, failure to comply. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. And, and I think they're, yeah, I think they're connected ideas, right? So what happened in Indiana is in 2006, um, the governor at the time, Mitch Daniels, um, high, uh, signed a, what was eventually a $1.4 billion contract with this consortium of high-tech companies that included IBM and um, ACS uh, to automate and privatize all of the eligibility processes for the state's uh, food stamps, Medicaid, and cash assistance programs. Um, And how the system worked was basically they removed 1,500 local uh, welfare caseworkers, moved them to regional call centers, Mm-hmm. Um, and by doing that, broke the relationship that had existed in the past between um, caseworkers and the families they serve. Mm-hmm. So they replaced a system that had been case-based or family-based with a system that was based on tasks. So all caseworkers saw was a list of tasks, mm-hmm. not like um, they didn't have like a roster of families to serve. They had a list of tasks to uh, respond to well. in their computer in their computer queue. And from the recipient's point of view, every time you called one of these call centers, you would speak to somebody different, right? So it wouldn't be like, you know, you and I talked for three hours to try to figure this out last week, and now I just need to know, like, what page I'm supposed to sign on. It would be like you have to go through the whole thing again. Um, and, and what happened is these applications are um, incredibly complicated, um, and the bureaucracy is incredibly hard to navigate. And um, people made mistakes. 
on their applications when they didn't have one-on-one support. Mm. And then the folks who made mistakes were refused services for this reason, failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. Um, And that meant, you know, a six-year-old girl with cerebral palsy was kicked off of Medicaid for failure to cooperate. Sophie Stipes, who I I talk a lot about in the book. Omega Young, who is an African-American woman from Evansville, Indiana, um, missed a phone call to recertify for Medicaid um, because she was in the hospital dying um, of ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. And she was kicked off her resources for failure to cooperate, right? Like a nun who missed an appointment because she was playing the organ in her church on a holy day, right, was was kicked off for failure to cooperate, right? So it became this incredibly brittle system that um, I believe used this sort of catch-all reason, failure to cooperate, uh, just to cull the um, the welfare roles in the state. And, and that's what happened. So there were a million denials in the first year, three years of this experiment, a 54% increase from the three years before it. Um, and it, it was really, uh, it was really horrific, right? Like people died. Um, and one of the things that's really important to understand about the Indiana system, one of the things I, I tell people is, even if you think you're going to be among the 33% of folks in the United States who don't use welfare at some point in their life, um, if you don't care about um, that and you don't think that's going to happen to you, um, after 50 years of these sort of digital experiments on poor and working class families, yes. the architects of these systems are now aiming for middle class entitlement programs. Mm. So they're aiming for Social Security, disability, unemployment, and Medicare. And if you look at the Trump administration's proposed budget, mm-hmm. um, one of the things it does – so everybody's been focusing on the cuts, and the cuts are really important, and we should keep our eye on them. But something that I haven't heard many people talk about – is that the new budget actually promises that the federal government will save close to $200 billion in these programs over the next 10 years wow. because they're going to ferret out more fraud, reduce <laughs> the proper payments, and improve program integrity, which is basically language that is pulled directly out of that contract. Oh, wow. And that, and that case went so badly that the state of Indiana actually had to break the contract with IBM. Um, IBM then sued the state for breach of contract and not only got to keep the half a billion dollars they had already collected, were awarded fifty million more dollars in penalties. Wow. Right? So <laughs> it it um kicked a million people off um resources that they needed to survive and thrive. Um and it went so and it went so badly that it ended up costing the state like a probably a billion dollars in in the long run. And now we're about to federalize that we're about to do that at the federal level. So if people don't care about folks on um, public assistance, like I'm happy to fight with them about the morals of that. But even if you don't care about that, um, folks should be paying attention because this is now coming for all. um, It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, there's, there's really not any real political discussion about, you know, these, these automated algorithms and its impact on us. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, it's scary. Yeah, I feel like people are, st- I feel like we're starting to have those conversations. Yeah. Really, even just this year, like people are starting to be like, hang on. And I right. think actually a lot of that has to do with the administration change, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at something like the DACA database, the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals yes. database. Wow. So under an Obama administration, people were like, okay, I'm not super comfortable with giving you this information, <laughs> but I trust the government enough. To say like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna identify myself as right. someone who does not have legal status, trusting that you're gonna use this information to defer my deportation. And now, <laughs> and under a Trump administration, right, all of a sudden, 
um, people are like, hang on, mm. maybe I shouldn't have given you that information. Mm. Uh, like maybe this now becomes a database for deporting people. Mm. And that's a concern that came up in place after place where I was doing the reporting for this book is people would say, you know what, like, I think the folks who are producing these systems right now, and this is particularly in Los Angeles and Pittsburgh, which I actually think are two of the best systems we have. It's important that people understand that, right? This is not low-hanging fruit. These are not the scariest systems by a long shot. These are the best, best? ones. Wow. Yeah, they were super transparent. They share information about what's in the algorithm. Um, they've even had some, often some participatory design in, like, building the systems together with the communities mm. that are going to be affected they're public systems, so they're accountable to voters, at least in some way, right? So in many ways, these are the best systems. But folks would say, like, you know, we trust the administration we currently have, um, say, in Allegheny County. Folks trust the folks who are at the Office of Children, Youth, and um, Family Services right now. Um, but what happens wow. if we have yeah. these tools that Jeez. risk rates families, mm -hmm. and then we have a new administration who all of a sudden thinks it's the best idea in the world to pull kids out of families immediately if there's any kind of trouble. So that right? brings up a question. If you're going to have these systems, when is your data erased? Is there a, a statute of limitations on stuff like this? That is a great question. Currently, um, so that it's different in different places and for different systems. Currently, I think that's something we're not taking very seriously, mm -hmm. right? Like, so there tends to be, like in Los Angeles, um, I believe the informed consent lasts seven years, right? Um, so that's an incredibly long time. That and it is. doesn't, like... Once you get in housing, it doesn't just, like, disappear, right? Mm -hmm. You could, of course, say, like, well, as soon as you get access to the resource that you need, we just take all of your information out of the database. There could be easier processes for expungement, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there are not super functional um, rules around how long people's data can be held, um, and there's not super easy processes around expunging your data if you choose to be removed from the system. So those are some solutions that I think are really worth looking into, um, which is like sometimes people talk about this as data sunsetting, that there is a sort of a natural lifespan for data and that we shouldn't keep it forever just because we can. Um, but we should say, like, you know, this information should only be available to certain people for a certain limited period of time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's a, a potential solution that we should be thinking a lot more about. Yeah. Now, you you've been involved in <clears throat> this kind of work for a long time. And just wondering, writing this book, has it changed you in any way? That's such a great question. Um, you know, I think a combination uh, doing this work, being in this work, um, which for me includes doing, you know, community technology work, making sure people have access to, to tools that can help them increase their self-determination and access resources. Uh, my work in welfare rights, right, making sure that people get all of the shared benefits that they're eligible for and deserve um, to, to care for themselves and their families. Um, and this work specifically on um, uh, this journalism around how these systems are affecting people on the front lines, um, I kind of ironically uh, have made me, I kind of refer to myself as a hard-won optimist, mm -hmm. um, that I, I actually really believe that um, the families that I've worked with have shown so much resilience and so much humor and so much generosity, right? Mm -hmm. Like the risk 
that folks took going on the record to tell their stories in this book is so extraordinary, right? They're such extraordinarily brave people um, that I am actually really hopeful about our ability um, to join together and push back um, on the worst, most punitive of these systems and on the sort of philosophy that underpins it, which is this idea that there is a scarcity that we won't, we can't overcome, that there's not enough for everyone. Like that, that's a, that these systems are doing triage. Like that's a political choice. Mm -hmm. And I think we collectively, we have an ability to push back against um, that idea that there's not enough for everyone in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Mm -hmm. And the choice we face right now is really about moving to human rights centered approaches that meet all of our basic human needs rather than doubling down on these tools of moral diagnosis and judgment. Um, Signs politically right now point to the latter, but signs that I'm seeing in the communities in which I work uh, point to moving towards this human rights approach um, and and, uh, really pushing back against these tools that are supposed to predict our futures um, and diagnose our faults. Right. So what what do you want, what do you want us to mainly take away? If the reader had to take away anything, what do you really want them to take away? I think I think I want. So I have in the past I've been an I've been an academic, and I am shifting into being more of a, a journalist and a, more of a popular writer. And and the reason that I've done that is after twenty years in economic justice movements. Um, I really struggled with um, the stories we tell about poverty mm-hmm. and the way those stories limit what's possible to do politically and socially and culturally. Um, so part of that transition for me was around learning new skills so I could tell these stories with a kind of urgency that they really need. So I really want people to come out of this book with with feelings, <laughs> right? I want people yeah. to feel the urgency of these issues. Mm-hmm. And I also want people who have not had experience inside public service systems to, to, to feel a little bit of what it feels like to be the target of these systems. And I want the folks who have been parts of these systems to feel like they're being heard and like this is an experience that is shared across the country with millions of people and that they're powerful and strong and that they can change how these things work. And I'll let you know, you definitely got that across because I was like, you know, all this technology takes away the human factor. And a book like this gives great examples of people who have been um, affected by this and people who are trying to push through this. So putting that, like you said, a face to it, a story to it, really brings it home that we all need to help each other. And showing these kind of systems shows that we need to get together to work to kind of make these better. I mean, this technology could be awesome if it has a human factor in it and it takes in in the people's... um, takes into takes their agency and their self-determination as part of these systems and the importance of that. And I think you did a great job with yeah. this book. Thank you so much. It's super gratifying to hear. I, I'm, I'm glad that was your experience with the book. Yeah. Well, Virginia Eubanks, thank you so much for being on Book Speaks and Beyond. Thanks so much for having me. This is a really exciting uh, interview. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. 
if you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we would then put toward the operations of this show. Um, and also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore. <laughs>